Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Rieger, who is a professor of history in the Department of Judaic Studies at Brooklyn College. She earned her PhD from Columbia University in Middle East History. She has published on a variety of topics, both scholarly and popular, including articles on Winston Churchill during World War I. She joins us today to talk about her new book, Winston S. Churchill and the Shaping of the Middle East, 1919 to 1922. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. My pleasure, Ari. Thank you. It's an honor to have the chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. So to begin, can you tell us a bit about yourself? You mean my professional CV? Yeah, both either. Yeah, something about yourself professionally, especially um, how did you become interested in the topic of Winston Churchill Uh, and the Middle East? That's a story. Okay, so let me go into my background. Um, I got my um, bachelor's degree from City College, CCNY of New York. Okay. um, When it was free. That was a long time ago. Uh, From there, I went on to Columbia University, where I got a variety of degrees, Middle Eastern studies, um, history. Uh, There's an institute there that gives out certificates as well that usually ends up with people who go to the State Department um, to work there or the CIA. And I decided to continue on for my PhD at the um, encouragement of both my parents. Wow. And yeah, considering, well, my father is not, was not the usual kind of immigrant um, from Eastern Europe. He had a doctorate and he spent his life teaching Bible at Yeshiva University. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into some of that stuff later on. <laughs> anyway, yeah, absolutely. Um, I ended up with a major in Middle East history and a minor in Jewish history. And um, I had a, um, since he's no longer in this world, I can be very open about my professor who I wrote under. Okay. Um, he was not the greatest person to have as your mentor. Oh, because, gee. Yeah. He was one of these dictators that told students what he wanted. And um, he pretty much told me, what my dissertation was going to be on, even though it did not particularly interest me. He said, you're writing on the fight between the India office and the foreign office over the Middle East um, after World War I. I said, okay. I went and I started doing my research, did about six months worth, five months worth of it. And one of my classmates said, Sarah, I think you better go to the bookstore. So I went to the bookstore and there on the new books was a book on that title. Wow. Bought the book, walked into Hurwitz's office, threw the book on his desk and said, I quit. And I stormed out of there. Okay. So I came home and I had, you know, you can just imagine what I went through. Wow. He finally finally called me two days later and said, come on, Sarah, come on in. Let's talk this over. Mm-hmm. So I went in to see him and he said, well, you already did background material on these things. Is there anything that pops into your head that really turned you on at the time that you were doing it? I said, yeah, actually, Churchill's name kept coming up. 
He said, okay. I said, Professor Hurwitz, can you check this out to make sure nobody is working on this? So this time he really checked it out. Nobody was working on it and I got started. Okay, so that was a long time ago. What happened is I did too much research. I did too much really? work on it. And when I handed, um, when uh, uh, I continued progressing, we realized that I could not cover 1912 to 1922 because it would have been two volumes, three volumes, four volumes worth of material. Okay. So I moved off in different directions and then came back to it a few years ago and said, okay, I have all this material. Let me finally put it together. So that's how I got into this. Why did I like Churchill? I like Churchill because he was creative. I like wow. Churchill because some of the stuff that I had read right at the beginning showed me that I was dealing with somebody who was very different from what I connected with British government officials. Mm. And um, I saw some of his paintings, which also turned me on. I said, this guy was really something else. And then I heard some of his recordings from World War II, which I did not hear live, obviously. Okay. Um, and I could picture him in Parliament giving the arguments that I had only read the material about until then. So it ended up being, yes, he turns me on. I think he's phenomenal. I think he was phenomenal. He was in his 40s. Wow. 40s. We're wow. not talking about Winston Churchill, World War II. We're talking about somebody who was who was fresh into the field, so to speak. So that's how I got into um, into the book. And, wow. uh, and we had fun choosing the cover, um, my press and myself. What's the significance of what we see on the cover? That's a photograph that was taken when Churchill was in Egypt for the Cairo conference of 1921. Wow. And the full photograph shows some of, if you turn it over on the back, shows Lawrence of Arabia was one of the people who was there. Um, and uh, this was the first time he was meeting these Middle East specialists. Um, and uh, I feel very, I agree with the writers about the Cairo conference that was one of the most important things that happened in the shaping of the Middle East. Right. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that's a great segue to discuss some of the content of your book. Um, in fact, significant attention is paid in your book to the Cairo conference. Um, I'd be curious to ask you, how do you evaluate the significance of the Cairo conference of 1921? Well, the significance is, I mean, let's first, let me counteract um, what T.E. Lawrence said. Oh, everything was decided before we got there. No, no. What was decided was the agenda. Mm -hmm. The agenda, because by the time the Cairo conference came, we're skipping his, his experience in the, in the as Secretary of State for War and Air. We're already into him in the colonial office. Um, so let me put it into the larger picture. Um, I'm stepping back, but I'll get to your question. Sure. World War I ended and yeah. the world was a mess. Yes. The Middle East was a mess and a lot of the world was a mess. Mm -hmm. And um, 
all kinds of decisions had to be made within the context of who won the war, how to deal with the losers, how to also deal with the newly created League of Nations, which did not allow conquering countries to actually keep the areas that were conquered. Ottoman Turkey made the mistake of joining um, the central powers, namely uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary in the war. It was a close call. I actually have a, an article that I wrote about that. Um, and uh, they almost joined on the allied side, but in the end changed their mind. And um, the conquering armies of the Middle East were British armies. There were two sets of armies. One was General Allenby coming up from Egypt with Egyptian expeditionary force, where he stayed on the west side of the Jordan River and um, uh, Faisal stayed on the east side, we'll get to Faisal shortly, on the east side of the river with T.E. Lawrence heading up towards Damascus to conquer it. The reason for this fight was to um, alleviate the pressure on Russia, which was on the side of, uh, of, of the allies uh, during the war, um, from the pressure of the Ottoman Turkish uh, armies. So it was going to open a second front. The second British army that invaded the Middle East came from India, and that came up through southern Iraq, moving northward from Basra up to Baghdad and up to Mosul. So the war's over. And you have these two British occupying armies and Churchill was originally given the job of demobilization of these armies along with economizing. That was when he was secretary of state for war and air. Okay. The more he tried to do, the more he realized that he was facing all kinds of opposition from other offices, for example, the India office and the foreign office. He was facing opposition to his creative stuff from people within his own office. He also found himself facing uh, France, which was acting up at the peace talks because they had their own ambitions. And there was a lack of the Turkish treaty. So because of all of these different things that were going on, Churchill kept writing to the prime minister, you've got to create a Middle East department. You've got to create something that will be able to handle all of the stuff that we were talking about until now. So because he pushed so hard, Prime Minister David Lloyd George agreed to set up a Middle East department in the colonial office, which was very tricky because colonial office has all the attributes of colonialization and we're taking over this place and so on and so forth. But Churchill managed to, to deal with that. Really? So once, yes. Yeah, so once he got into the office and he started to organize things, and he was a superb person at this, he says, "This is crazy. I am not going to start dealing with all of my issues via telegrams." Don't forget, this is post World War One. You didn't have the kinds of of technology that we have now. Uh, you didn't even have the possibility of long distance telephone calls to be able to get there. So it was, yes radio, but it didn't quite work, but it was many telegrams. So he came up with the idea of having a co conference in Cairo, which was under British uh, influence at that time. And he called in all of his Middle East experts to discuss what do we do? What do we do with demobilization? What do we do with economizing? What do we do with all the promises that were made during World War I 
to a variety of different political parties. And that was all on the agenda. So when he arrived in Cairo with his advisors uh, and met with them in uh, the Semiramis Hotel, which was set up then, very luxurious, mm -hmm. um, he had the agenda already. He had worked on it on the ship over, coming over, and he divided everything up into two committees. You had the Iraq committee or Mesopotamia, which they started to call it at the beginning, gradually became Iraq, to discuss issues connected with that, and the Palestine Transjordan uh, committee. And uh, periodically, and it was a very short conference, very intense, and people would meet, the leading people would meet after a full day of meetings to kind of exchange ideas of what was going on at the time. By the time it was finished, policy had been set on the part of Churchill, but it wasn't set in terms of Great Britain because you have the politics involved and the whole bureaucracy of having to get the approval of the prime minister and then having to get the approval of parliament before any action could be taken. So was the Cairo conference important? Yes. Okay, it set the groundwork. And if we want to move a little bit into Palestine at this point, I found the first clues in that, in the documents there, for what's going to become the economic absorptive capacity principle for the Palestine mandate. I wow. found Churchill's first little comments of it, and then it becomes gradually policy. Wow, gosh. Um, what was Churchill's relationship like with Amir Abdullah during the time of the Cairo conference? Okay, Amir Abdullah, I think I should treat both brothers at the same time. Sure. Okay, so we're Abdullah talking about Abdullah and we're talking about um, uh, Faisal. Yes. Okay, just to, um, for people who don't know, these are sure. two out of the four main sons of the Sharif of Mecca. The Sharif of Mecca was the guardian of the holy sites of Mecca and Medina um, in the Hejaz in uh, Western Arabia. Um, the first relationship that was set up with the family was when Lawrence was sent as emissary from the High Commissioner of Egypt to try to talk um, the Emir, the, the, the Sharif, into um, uh, setting up an army to help uh, with the with the war and to invade uh, Ottoman Turkey through Palestine. Um, Lawrence loved Faisal. Mm -hmm. He was the epitome of the Arab prince of of this this fantasy that Lawrence had in his head of wow. what a prince. Arabia should be. He couldn't stand Abdullah. He actually called him a dwarf at one point. Would you believe it? Um, wow. Yeah, Abdullah was very short. And Abdullah was the older one, okay? The older than, than, um, than Faisal. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, sidetracked in my own head. No, you're welcome to... Uh, you're welcome to digress as, as, as you wish. Yeah. Um, so, what happened, so what happened when um, Churchill came on the scene, he was very friendly with Lawrence. 
He was not as taken with him as some people claimed that he was. Churchill was very discerning in terms of um, who he trusted, who he didn't trust. And that was one of his gifts is that he could tell who he could trust and he could also tell how far he could trust them. He really trusted Gertrude Bell, which is a quite quite an interesting story. Into interesting. Itself. Yeah. So when he first was introduced to uh, Faisal, he was seeing him through the eyes of, of, of um, Lawrence. And he was impressed with him very positively to start with. Um, he met with him in London as well, and he continued to be impressed with him. Uh, it wasn't until Faisal was actually set up as um, king of Iraq or moving in the direction of becoming king of Iraq that you had the clashes between Churchill and Faisal. And that's when you have that, that um, phrase, um, he's a weak man. Mm-hmm because only weak men rely on the kinds of politics because this is Churchill talking well wow. as, as the strategist of how to deal with politics. Wow. Um, yeah. In terms of, of meeting with Abdullah, that came as a side trip after the Cairo conference when um, he decided, Churchill decided, well, I'm here. This is my one and only chance at this point to go to see the Holy Land. I'm going up to uh, Palestine and I'm going to see what's going on over there. And he sent Lawrence to Transjordan, as it was called at that time, where Abdullah was located in, um, uh, in the capital over there. Excuse me, because he, is, his, um, he had come into Transjordan through a whole different series of events. And uh, Churchill said, I wanna meet him. Lawrence, bring him to Jerusalem. So Lawrence went into that. Churchill took the train up to uh, to Jerusalem. He had a wonderful time visiting the different places, the holy places. And then the meeting was set up between himself and Abdullah. Okay. Um, in my book, I give enough details about the meeting between the two of them. My reading of the material and of the notes that were left by the secretary who was taking notes at the time is that Abdullah must have thought that he could manipulate Churchill. He very quickly realized he had not only met his match, but he was defeated. Wow. (laughs) It was that he wanted. So he could only pick up on the crumbs to satisfy his own ego. And he agreed at that point to be um, the uh, uh, overseer of Transjordan for six months with a nice batch of gold as a payoff as well. Six months, very important that it was six months, and um, packed his bags, um, Abdullah, and went back across the Jordan River. Uh, and Churchill finished his visit and came back to Great Britain. Yeah. Gosh, wow. What an interesting story. Um, it's just such a, it's such a testament to the role of individuals and personalities in the shaping of history. Oh yeah, that I agree. You, you described the Cairo conference as being unbelievably short and fruitful and as being unprecedented as a forum for evaluating Middle Eastern problems. You mentioned that it served to arrest the process of drift and muzzle, which had characterized World War I. What does the Cairo conference teach us in regard to how the mandatory period 
will subsequently unfold? And what does the Cairo conference teach us in regard to lessons of, of relevance for today's Middle East? Whoa, okay. Those are two very convoluted questions and answers. Um, okay. Let's take Iraq first. Okay. Iraq is made up of three provinces. It is a mistake to think that just because they are all Arabs, that they are all the same. They are not. Mm. These three provinces contain very different populations, very different outlooks, and they very often can't stand each other. Yes. Okay? So that the forming of one unit, see the Turks in that respect were smarter. They set up the Vilayet system, the province system, and right. they kept these three groups separate with separate governors and with separate decisions that were made. Now you're going to be getting one country with these three provinces joined together under a supposedly unified leadership. In this case, it's going to be King Faisal, who's eventually, he will be the king. Uh, how is Faisal going to rule? He is not independent. He is under mandatory power. This is going to bring arguments and dissension back and Yes. The League of Nations creates the mandate system. What is a mandate of the conquered territories? What does it mean to mandate? It means you are mandating power over a conquered backward quote unquote territory to one of the Western powers that is going to be mandated control over this area to teach them democracy, legislative processes, parliamentary processes. And once they learn how to be democratic, this mandatory power is going to step out and this country will be a country that is independent. Okay. Wow. That's what they invented at the League of Nations. And uh, Faisal kept fighting all the way through until 1922, until the book ends over here. He wanted to be recognized as an independent country right away. He wanted to be in treaty relationships. He wanted to join the League of Nations. And Churchill said, no, sir, mm -hmm. no way. And it had reached the point where, if you follow through the book, he was ready, Churchill was ready to kick Faisal out of the country. And just then, Faisal came down with appendicitis. And there was a whole crisis that was going on back in London at the time. And by the time he recovered from appendicitis, Faisal was ready to accept what, what Churchill uh, had, had demanded. Now, Palestine, okay? Mandatory power over Palestine. Is it going to be on both sides of the Jordan or is it not going to be on both sides of the Jordan? Abdullah wanted it to be totally independent. That's what he was fighting for when he met with Churchill in Jerusalem at the time, okay? Churchill and his uh, uh, committees that were there said no, especially Herman Samuel, this is one mandatory area and it's going to be under a British high commissioner who is going to be given the task of setting up legislative councils, all kinds of democratic ways of doing things. But because of the Balfour Declaration and the Arab antagonism to the Balfour Declaration, you're going to have one of the uh, 
most complicated things that has ever been introduced into the Middle East, and it's still there today. Wow. Right? Yes. Isn't it there today, Ari? Yes. Right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Where do you want, where do you want to go from here? Um, speaking of Palestine, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Herbert Samuel? And what was Churchill's relationship like with Herbert Samuel? Okay, Herbert Samuel was the ultimate bureaucrat. He was superb. Um, he had the um, organizing ability and the personality uh, to really go into Palestine. He didn't want to do this, by the way, because he felt that, that, that uh, he was entering into a can of worms. And uh, the fact that he was Jewish was going to be um, um, uh, dealt with by both sides the wrong way <laughs> or the right way, whichever way you want to look at it. But he identified himself totally and completely as British. And he and Churchill got along well. Um, the differences of opinion that they had were usually when um, Herbert Samuel was more concerned with things that were going on on the ground, so to speak, in Palestine, like for example, at the time is when they had the Arab riots in 1920, or they had the Arab riots of 1921, he was more concerned with um, dealing with the issues on the ground, whereas Churchill always viewed things within the larger picture of the British Empire and of his um, um, job that he had to cut expenses, for example. So let me give you an example. Um, Churchill was brilliant at coming out with a way to cut down on the army. Remember, this is right after the war. You have hundreds of thousands of British soldiers all over the world that are dying to come home, okay? And tens of thousands of them in, in the Middle East. And nobody wanted to stay there. It's over, the war's over, bring us back home. There were also uh, demonstrations in, in Great Britain, bring our boys home. So he came up with the idea, Churchill, of switching control or the possibility of being able to control large tracts, specifically in the Middle East, through the Air Force. He had had experience of being Secretary of State for War and Air. So through the Air Force and through the creation of local gendarmerie. Plus, he was very much big, gendarmerie in the sense of police. Um, he was also very big on using Indian troops in um, Middle Eastern areas because they were much cheaper. And don't forget, India is the keystone of the empire. The right. whole policy of the Middle East. Middle East is important to Great Britain because it is the land route to India and it is the sea route to India. Middle East was not that important right. to Great Britain as India. So you've got to, you know, I forgot to bring that up, up uh, before. So through these different things, now Samuel said, I need a stronger British force here to keep the Arabs from rioting. And Churchill said, no, you're going to develop local Palestinian police. So they had this argument that went back and forth because one viewed it from one point and one viewed it uh, from the other. Um, so they kind of came out with an with a initial compromise that the, um, um, that the British army stayed there a little bit longer but Allenby was given the order to General Allenby to withdraw, take his horses all with him. And it was up to Herbert Samuel to work out um, how to develop 
this uh, local police force. He, Herbert Samuel, absolutely refused to accept Indian troops into Palestine. He said, you'll be introducing another element that will cause all kinds of dissension. Please don't do this. And Churchill listened to him and that kind of fell by the way. Um, so that's a long answer to a short question of the relationship uh, between the two. By the way, um, it was Herbert Samuel who drew up what came to be known as the Churchill White Paper of 1922. Mm. Uh, yes, they worked it out together and Churchill had to agree to all of these things. And they had discussed things via uh, telegrams as well as in the Cairo conference earlier about this stuff, but he's the one Herbert Samuel was the one who actually wrote the document up, uh, stressing to the um, uh, uh, colonial secretary, to Churchill, you have to address the issues of the Zionists, you have to address the issues of the Arabs, and then we come out with new policy. A white paper means new British policy, and it has to be presented to Parliament for approval. You can't just do it. Okay, so we move into the final point of what Churchill had to do, and that was get parliament to agree to things, which was not easy, not easy. Why was the creation of a Middle East department in the colonial office significant in the context of this period? Well, because the other alternatives were the putting it into the India office, or putting it into the foreign office. It wasn't important enough to stand by itself. Um, the uh, argument against putting into the colonial office, as I said before, is the word colonial. Okay, so that um, it could be a big turnoff to people who are saying, but we're not colonies. We are not, we are mandates. We are not colonies. But uh, eventually, the argument against it being in the colonial office kind of, of dissipated. And uh, because Churchill really set up a very strong Middle East department, getting some of the best people that he could who were Middle East specialists uh, to participate in from, he even managed to get some people to leave the war office and, and join him in the Middle East department, even though some of them were not too happy to do this to start with, but in the end they felt that they were they had made uh, the right decision. Um, no, the India office under Curzon was um, not the place for anything creative. Curzon was an older gentleman. He was as imperialist as you could possibly come. He could not believe that you could have people who were not white as free, independent, Western style democracies, don't ask. <laughs> wow. Yeah, some of the, of the stuff, he was as racist as the game. And to see that he was in charge of this huge Indian army was, was well, I find it ironic. Yeah, ironic is a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> wow, thank you for sharing this. Um, what was the nature of Britain's rivalry with France in the Middle East after World War I? And how did Churchill deal with, with, with France in the Middle East during this period of time? Okay. 
Francois, okay, let's go back to even before World War I. We talk about areas of influence and areas of interest. France had uh, become interested in um, Syria in particular, in what we call Lebanon nowadays, but then it was part of, of, of Syria, um, in part for religious reasons that they sent out. Um, uh, Catholic Church was very active in, in trying to convert um, the rest of the world to Catholicism. Uh, France was also interested in spreading its culture, very, very proud of its culture. Um, it set up um, uh, schools and even a university uh, in Beirut way before, before World War I started. Um, and this was considered an area of both cultural interest, religious interest, and um, economic interest. And don't think the religious doesn't play a role because France is Catholic, Great Britain is Protestant. So you're going to have issues with Palestine, for example, as a result of the different Christianities. Uh, Britain got involved in the Middle East first through um, the Suez Canal. So Egypt is the area of, of interest for that. And then from, the, from India, you have the interest in um, Persia, Persian oil. So you have that pre-World War I as well. And um, when the war started, World War I started, you had secret treaties that were made um, in, uh, uh, in Europe between the allies. So it would be Russia, Britain, and France um, over taking for granted they were going to win the war. What do we do with the areas that we're going to conquer from Ottoman Turkey? Um, okay, so we're just focusing on that. Uh, France was supposed to be getting in the area that we would now call Syria and, and Lebanon. And uh, Britain was supposed to be getting um, uh, southern Iraq, central Iraq. The north was under dispute between, uh, already between France and, and Britain. Um, why was Britain interested in Palestine, Jordan, uh, southern Iraq, central Iraq? Because as I said before, that's the imperial route overland to India. So these were the separate areas of interest and the pacts were signed. Um, the Sykes-Picot Agreement set it up. Uh, Russia said, do whatever you want with the Ottoman Middle East. I'm only, we're only interested in, in, in the Black Sea and the, and the Dardanelles uh, and Constantinople. Um, when the war was originally being fought, France was participating in the fighting, but France really got hammered during World War I. So you have to picture that there, France was the battleground you know, for a good part of the war. Uh, French, French armies in the Middle East almost disappeared. So by the time you get to the end of the war, it's Great Britain's armies that actually physically conquered the entire area. So of Middle East, so that, that, that Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and uh, both sides of, of the Jordan or Palestine. So what happened at the peace agreements when you had the meetings um, after World War I, and the discussion of what to do with uh, these different areas, France stuck to that Sykes-Picot agreement like glue because they were afraid that otherwise they would not get 
any of the territories that they claimed was coming to them. So the arguments that went on back and forth and back and forth at the peace agreements uh, led to nowhere. And um, it finally ended up with um, the push being given by the Arabs themselves when um, they had a so-called Syrian Congress uh, that decided to choose Faisal as their king. Uh, and um, uh, the allied powers immediately met at San Remo and you have the mandates decided upon there and then. Okay, so you got France getting what was pretty much in the Sykes-Picot agreement and Britain getting that as well. The difference that you had in uh, the Sykes-Picot agreement and the uh, actual mandates was that in Sykes-Picot, Palestine, west of the Jordan River, was to be internationalized. It was not to belong to anybody, or any, and this has to do in part with the differences between the religions, because Russia was involved in this too. So you've got Russian Orthodox, you've got Catholic, and you've got Protestants, and therefore they decided Palestine and Jerusalem and all the holy places were going to become internationalized. That goes by the wayside as a result of the fighting and of the British occupation. So France is sticking to its guns. And as soon as the decision is made about San Remo, at San Remo, France sends its troops into Damascus, bombs Damascus, and Faisal has to run away and he runs across into Iraq. So uh, it is going to stick to the borders that they claim were there, and it's going to make trouble for Churchill every single time that he oh tries my. to get over it. Wait, let me make it more complicated. Now, if Faisal is thrown out, big brother Abdullah gets his army together again down in Arabia and marches up north into Transjordan, heading towards Damascus to put baby brother back on the throne. This is when the British come in and say, no, you're not doing this. You're stopping. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, it's actually interesting in light of, you know, it, 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 when we think about the Middle East in light of current events, we forget that there was a time when the Middle East was not dominated by one single power, i.e. the United States. And by reminding our listeners of the paradoxes playing out in Middle Eastern geopolitics at this time, what's, what's striking is that in contrast to the way we tend to view the Middle East today, where we see the Middle East as, you know, the most, certainly it's the part of the world that gets the most media coverage in Western societies. We consider it the most, the most important location geopolitically. Um, you, you do a very wise piece of offering a historical counter perspective in describing a time when the Middle East was not the central theater of world politics. And it's also quite remarkable in light of current affairs where someone who studies international relations through the lens of uh, current day developments has is, is accustomed to thinking of the United States as the primary power dominating the region. Um, what you describe is a very complex reality playing out after World War I where Britain and France were very much at loggerheads and the reality of a Middle East 
where competing imperial interests are wrestling with one another um, is something that we easily lose sight of when we solely think of the Middle East uh, through the American-centric lens that is so often the case in our lifetime. Let me interrupt for a sec. There is one thing that's the same from that period of time down to now, and that's Russia. Yes. Okay. You had the Russian menace, to quote Churchill, the Bolshevik menace, starting then and playing it all the way down to today with the Russian influence. Yeah. Which is Uh, one of the constants. Go ahead. That leads me to my next question. Um, How do you evaluate the consequences of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia on the Middle East during the time of Churchill's geopolitics? Can you comment for us on the consequences of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia on Britain's Middle East policy just after World War I? Sure. Um, Once the Bolsheviks gained complete power uh, and they stepped out of World War I uh, to do their own thing because they were focusing on themselves, um, you have the tentacles already reaching out at that early stage as early as 1919, even 1918, no, 1919, I think it was, or maybe 1920, that you had them reaching out to uh, try to expand their their influence um, in other parts of the world, including various parts of the Middle East. So you have to kind of picture the underbelly of, uh, of what's going to become the Soviet Union because they were doing it in in Afghanistan already, in Iran, but I'm focusing mainly on what, what, what Churchill was involved in. Okay? Yes. Um, what happened, it's gonna be, I have to go into a little bit of background. After the war was over um, and the Ottoman Turks uh, surrendered, uh, the Turks were, that were being negotiated with were not, the Sultan was overthrown as a whole different government. Uh, that's attempting to to rule um, in uh, Constantinople. Uh, What happened at the end of the war, however, is that in the eastern parts of Turkey, uh, right north of the Arabic-speaking countries, you had um, a Turkish officer of brilliance who organized around himself an army that ended up being one of the most solid Turkish armies of that period of time. His name is Mustafa Kemal, known uh, more commonly as Ataturk. Right. And why was he able to organize this group? Because in this case, I blame in part David Lloyd George for part of what was happening at the time. And it may also have been the French fault too. Namely, the biggest enemy in the minds of the Turks is Greece. Yes. And what happened as a result of the conquest of the Ottoman Turks is that the Allies put Greek occupying powers in Asiatic Turkey. 
mm-hmm. in Asiatic Turkey, in Anatolia, which caused all of these groups of disaffected soldiers that had fought under the Ottoman Turks to gather together under the leadership of um, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Um, yes. As, as the policy kept going in favor of Greece and Lloyd George kept sticking to his guns about being in favor of, of Greece and Churchill kept arguing, please, we've got to make peace with Turkey. You've got to take this new guy at the Turk into, into consideration. You can't just, because why? Because we have to worry that the Bolsheviks are going to contact Ataturk, join in with his army and take over all of Anatolia. Was this a possibility? Yes, this was a possibility because the Bolsheviks were already negotiating there. And there was, I, it's not in my dissertation. It's, it's, I'm hoping that somebody actually wrote uh, um, on, this, on this material. Um, I just mentioned it kind of en passant. It also was known that the um, Bolsheviks were reaching out to uh, disaffected Arabs in Iraq and helping to say, no, you should not come under the control of these, of these Westerners, these colonial powers. You should be free. You should choose. A-. And they were feeding them all kinds of different pro- propaganda as well. Would they have been able to succeed um, in, in fomenting anything? Who knows? The uh, main thing is, is that in the mind of Churchill, this was one of the major political factors that he felt that Great Britain had to deal with. And uh, just to skip to World War II, when he first met Stalin, and we have what he wrote about Stalin, he considered him evil incarnate. <laughs> yes. Um, so he never changed his mind in terms of his approach uh, to that. Now, um, I forgot what the question was. I was gonna. The, the question was the consequences of the rise of Bolshevism on ah, okay on so, Churchill's so, approach to the Middle East. Yeah. So in that respect, he always viewed the uh, uh, Bolshevik menace as a reality and uh, wanted to settle everything down uh, and uh, settle the tribes down and get everybody to be pacified and move and develop and become industrialized or create, you know, peaceful countries. That's what he was hoping for. Productive countries. Wow. Speaking of productive, um, there were very few people who influenced Churchill and made a humongous impression on him. Pinchas Rutenberg, Hmm. one of the few people that I ever came across that Churchill wrote in his uh, diaries, what? A man, what a brilliant mind. He, Churchill, saw that Rutenberg's plans for developing Palestine were the key to developing Palestine. And he backed his plans completely. So we're talking about water development, hydroelectricity, and through the hydroelectricity using the Jordan River, he would be providing electricity for railroads that could be built throughout the entire country. And as High Commissioner Herbert Samuel thought this was a dream that would never happen because he also saw that the future lay in something like the ideals of Pinchas Rutenberg. Yeah. 
I actually wrote a whole article on Rutenberg as a result of that. That is fascinating. Yeah. Actually, speaking of Palestine, if there was no Russian Revolution, would there have been a Balfour Declaration? Oh, I think so. I think that they were negotiating way before that. Sure. I didn't, my, my brain just went together over here. Um, actually, when the Balfour Declaration was uh, supposed to come out on November 2nd, it was 1917, it was pushed off the main headlines by the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. So they both kind of happened at, at the same time. No, the Balfour Declaration came about as that's a whole complicated uh, things that had to do with, with um, British Zionists, the World Zionist Organization, with Chaim Weizmann, who, by the way, was another person who made a major impression on Winston Churchill. He considered him a gentleman par excellence um, and said we could talk about so many different things. Uh, Dr. Weizmann, the chemist, right. Uh, so, no, no connection. Okay, okay. What was the relationship like between Ataturk and the Bolsheviks at this time? Were, were, were... He, I think as far as I could see, he was playing every card that he could find to try to get weaponry, to try to get backing, and um, to try to get power to move forward. Uh, he was using very old weaponry, all of the stuff that was left over from uh, the Ottoman Turks. Um, the Bolsheviks promised that they would be able to provide him with weaponry. Uh, I don't know the details involved in it, but um, I think in the end he didn't get it from the Bolsheviks. But as he moved forward, gradually in 1922, westward across Anatolia, defeating every Greek army that met him, they simply took all the weaponry from there and continued on until they got to the coast. All right. That's, right. that's fascinating. Yeah. Very fascinating. He was very, very clever, but Ataturk was really very westernized. Once he came into power in Turkey itself, he wanted a democracy. He wanted the country to become westernized. He's turning over in his grave because of the guy who's the prime minister now. God, yeah. Don't get me started. That has nothing to do with my book. (laughs) Thank you. Today, there's quite a public debate over the memory of leaders who mistreated the non-European population subject to their rule. If Churchill were evaluated solely on the legacy he left behind in the Middle East between 1919 and 1922, had he not led Britain during World War II, how would Churchill, as you describe him in this book, inform such debates, which are presently playing out in public? Hmm. Um, in other words, was he a racist? Is that what you're asking? There's, there's that angle, but there's also perhaps, yeah, there's the issue of, of race, which, which might come up in this conversation in, in, in the answer to such a question. At the same time, perhaps there's also a question in terms of to what degree might Churchill's diplomacy and his attitude towards local actors in the Middle East 
differ from you know diff differ from someone like Corzon in 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 India? Um, to what degree were his perspectives on race similar or different to others in the implementation of Britain's foreign and colonial policies? I don't think he viewed the Middle East through those lenses. I think he viewed the Middle East as backward and needing to be educated. Um, he did not view them the same way. Um, I don't know what his attitudes were towards um, <clears throat> Indians from India or Africans, Sub-Saharan Africans. I think that when he came out with whatever statements he made about the Arabs, it was more within the realm of, <clears throat> excuse me, they're backward now, they have to be educated. It is our task to educate them. How do we educate them? We set up legislative councils, we set up parliaments, we set up schools that are going to teach things like democracy. <clears throat> I'm running out of steam, hold on a second. <clears throat> But I really, I really can't talk to um, specifics. Nothing, nothing comes to mind in terms of comments that he ever made that I would consider racist. Mm -hmm. um, he even had respect for women, which, uh, considering the background that he came from and the period of time when he, um, when he grew up and was educated, I think that was partly because he admired his mother he thought Jenny Churchill was superb. Um, he had a wonderful relationship with his wife, Clementine. And um, as I said, he was impressed with people like, um, um, what's her name? <laughs> I'm having a mental plot, Gertrude Bell. Gertrude Bell. Um, even though there were practically no women, there were no women in parliament at the time. Um, so his, he, he accepted people, I think, as they were. Um, he certainly had to deal with the queens. Uh, he had to deal with the queen. He had to deal, yeah. Now that I'm, I never thought about it before, but hmm, good for him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one of the biggest themes that comes up in your book is the conceptual theme. Can an individual make history? as you write in your introduction, or is the individual so governed by the situation which already exists when he moves onto the scene that his actions count for little? How large a part does chance play? How would you answer that question? Well, that's why I wrote a whole back, batch of things so that everybody can read it for themselves. <laughs> it's always a combination of, of, of all of the different factors that you mentioned. And uh, chance definitely plays a role in lots of people's lives. Um, and it played a role in Churchill's life as well. I mean, he almost was not brought back into government after the fiasco at the beginning of World War uh, I, where he was um, head of the Admiralty and uh, lost his position. He thought he'd never have a position in government again. Um, but I think that in the case of Churchill, he definitely played a role. His personality, his ambitions, his new ideas, his um, um, bulldoggedness, 
that's what he was called, Churchill the Bulldog, uh, where he would bite in, you know, the British Bulldog bites and doesn't let go, um, uh, enabled him to make a difference and to bring about what he thought at the time, well, there was peace that was brought about in the Middle East for um, a period of time after uh, his, his um, decisions came into existence. Um, you had peace in Palestine until 1936. You had peace in uh, Iraq until about that period of time. So at least there was a period of time when the policies that he helped introduce um, paid off and, and uh, came into existence and enabled the countries to progress, uh, progress in the sense of economics, progress in the sense of, of, of uh, uh, parliamentary government. Um, but then you know what happens, right? In both countries. And we're leaving, we're leaving Syria out of this, Syria, which is, has almost destroyed itself. And look at what's going on in Lebanon now with, with, with it being totally bankrupt and not even having enough food for its people. Oh, the world is a mess. Um, that's actually a segue into another question I'd love to ask you. Um, your book came out in 2020. And in the process of writing the book, Perhaps you were aware of some of the events taking place in the Middle East in recent years. Oh, you're talking about Trump. <laughs> um, what might Churchill have thought of leaders who use the Middle East as a theater to demonstrate their quote unquote Churchillian tendencies? I think he would have been appalled and turned over in his grave when he saw what was going on in his name. Really? Yes. Can you say more? I get why, why he would I feel that way. No, because you can't. He tried his best to see all sides. Okay. Um, Trump did, never tried to see both sides. He was out to make a big statement for himself. You don't want me to go on on this. Okay. I, I don't want no problem. To no yeah. problem. Um, In light of the research that has gone into this book, is there something different about the way Britain and its empire would approach the Middle East that's qualitatively different than an American lens towards the Middle East? Or is it primarily a function of the time when the Middle East was not a central region of global geopolitics, or is it a combination of both? It wasn't it just that it wasn't a center. It also was a period of great flux because of the war and the end of the war. And I think it was this period of flux where things were changing from the control of one country into the influence, let's not say control, influence of another couple of countries that you had the possibility, I think, of, of why I call it the shaping of the Middle East. Um, the, I, I keep using imagery in my book about Churchill as an artist and painter, um, that he would put you know, dabs of color here and there until he was happy uh, with, with what the paintings looked like. Um, he had the opportunity to, to, to 
create a painting. It doesn't exist now. This doesn't exist now at all. Everybody has moved totally into all of the nationalistic things that can be extremely destructive. And it's very hard to get people to sit down together and talk to each other. I mean, you're Canadian. You don't have as much of a problem as we do in this country with what's going on in our government now. Yeah. Just getting the different political parties to sit down. One of the things that Churchill hammered home, you have to sit and talk the stuff out. It doesn't matter what political party you belong to. You have to look at what the larger picture is and what the major goal is. And he had his orders from the prime minister of what he was supposed to be doing. Um, and he got people who did not like each other very much to sit down and talk things out. When I think one of the most difficult things for him to do was his final speech in 1922, uh, before he lost uh, his office, um, to uh, defend um, uh, the Palestine policy in the Church of White Paper and um, Zionism, because Britain had changed drastically politically from 1917, when the Balfour Declaration was promulgated, to 1922, there was this extremely anti-Zionist group of conservatives inside parliament. And uh, it looked as if the Churchill White Paper would not be able to pass. So he gave this incredible speech. I wish they would have had a, a tape recorder at the time so that I would be able to listen to it. I can only um, react to reading it myself and reading what people said about the way he delivered the speech. Um, and he came out even with the defense of, of Rutenberg, who these conservatives were so against. He says, yes, Mr. Rutenberg is a Jew. Am I supposed to say that over the portals of the new Palestine that were opening up as a Palestine mandate, no Jew need apply? You know, this, I'm paraphrasing, uh, believe me, I come nowhere near the kind of speeches that, that, that he gave. So. You asked about personal influence. Yeah, you can have personal influence. It, vote, it was voted in favor. And the mandate document followed right after that, promulgated by the League of Nations. And it was there until 1947, when the, 1948, when the British pulled out. Yeah. And if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that's my course on Israel. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm extremely grateful for the erudition that you've shared with us today in this conversation. As we bring this interview to a close, I'd be curious to ask you, what are you working on now as your next project? You're not going to believe it. What? My newest, my newest book, which I just signed a, signed a contract for, is called Unto Center Stage, The Biblical Woman. Wow. That's yeah. fascinating. How um, much different can you possibly be? <laughs> That's extremely interesting. Um, I would love to hear more about it, but I realize that you're probably just at the preliminary stages of no. developing the ideas. No, 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 no. I have my ideas down already. I've been, it's been, it's, I've been at Brooklyn College for over 40 years. And one of the courses that I developed, oh, you didn't ask me about the courses that I teach. I teach a course on modern Israel, which includes the mandate period of Palestine, at least half of it. I do one on the Jewish woman. 
I do one on Italian Jews. I do one on economic history of the Jews um, up to modern times. I do basic Jewish stuff and I'm leaving out one course, which I, oh, uh, Middle Eastern Jews, the Sephardic experience. So as a result of my teaching, the course on the Jewish woman, I have to teach the Bible and biblical women. And I finally got my act together and said, I'm writing this down. <laughs> so that's how the book I'm working on now came about. That's fascinating. Um, this might be an odd question, but was Winston Churchill a man of the Bible? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, that's why he had to go to the Holy Land. He yes. had to visit places for himself. He went to Bethlehem. He went, went up to Nazareth. He, he, he saw the Sea of Galilee, all the places that good Christians go, let alone Jerusalem. Yes. Oh, he was a good Christian. Yes. Good Protestant. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all this wisdom and knowledge with us today in this interview. Um, I'm honored to have had this time with you. I invite our listeners to check out this interview on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast, available on the New Books Network. Thank you for your time, and thank you, Sarah, for your attention okay. today. This was very interesting. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.